0: Now we come to the pinnacle of our time of worship together by opening up the Word of God and to study it and to meditate upon it together. So open your Bible to Matthew 5, Matthew 5, and we'll be spending our time in Matthew 5 in the first 13 verses of Matthew 5. You know, as you think about um, life, and uh, these are the times during your college days that you begin to uh, solidify what it is that uh, you are going to pursue in life, uh, what the trajectory is for uh, just the remainder of your days. Uh, these are moments where you're taking in truth and um, talking with and collaborating with good, wise counsel and uh, and setting uh, the course for the rest of your days. And, and as you do, uh, part of that is, is desire and happiness, isn't it? Um, nobody seeks to do something in the future that's like a red hot poker in your eye, right? I mean, you're, you're wanting to do something that is satisfying, that is of fulfilling, that brings blessedness and joy, I mean that's just embedded into our culture, isn't it? In Western culture, seems like everywhere you go, that the the overwhelming champion and the appeal to life and living it is the appeal to satisfaction and happiness seems wherever you go, whether it be a magazine or whether it be a movie or whether it be especially with advertisements, that one thing or another seems to have the secret of happiness, of joy, of satisfaction, and of pleasure. It becomes nauseating at times just that there are so many voices and opinions in today's day and age. And, but everybody's listening, aren't they? Isn't your heart longing for that and at times get captivated like I do late at night when I watch an infomercial and think that I really do need a food dehydrator, right? Because that's going to save me so much money and healthy eating, and that food dehydrator will bring me joy. I'm just using that as an example. It may or may not be true, right? <laughs> but it is, isn't it? A new toy, a friendship, a career that all around you that there seems to be this appeal that underneath that box is what's going to really satisfy you if you just have that particular thing that that will bring you joy and happiness i think it's okay to acknowledge that what it means to be human is to desire things What it means to be human is to seek after things. The Bible says very clearly that our hearts have thoughts and intentions and desires. The question of life is not, should we be satisfied or happy, like some sort of monastic experience, denying any sort of pleasure at all, but rather the question is, what is it that truly satisfies what is it that truly is blessed? What is it that truly is, makes life worth living and joyful and full of happiness? What is it? What is it? Because I'm telling you, friends, the longer that you live on this earth, is that, and what people are so desperately looking for is that as they get that thing, as they get to the pinnacle of whatever they've been looking for for satisfaction, that when they get to the top, they realize that it wasn't as satisfying or as blessed as the brochure said it was. So they long for the next thing. So they look for the next thing, always searching for what will truly be give joy and happiness because life is complicated. Life isn't just one sort of never-ending Disney TV show, right, that there's complications and there's hardships, but there is joy, and we long for that. So speaking into the fog of popular opinion of our day, the word of God reveals to us the best and most blessed life is only found in living under the lordship of Christ. What are you talking about? Wait a minute. Oh, what it means to be satisfied, what it means to have hope and joy and blessedness is, is that I am, I am the reigner. I am I would decide, what decides life. I reign as king that, that to submit to something that stifles joy, doesn't it? Takes it away. Giving my happiness in submission to something else, that seems counter-cultural. And it is. Because the culture of this world says that you are not to submit to anything. But the kingdom of God says the blessedness of life comes in submission to our sovereign Lord and King, being Jesus Christ. So the blessed life the happy life, the satisfied life in the end. And today, if there's one walk away that I want you to grasp, the the thing that I want us to, to look at and to think through is to say that the truly blessedness of this life is in living in submission to the Lordship of Christ. And that is better. It's better than anything this world has to offer. So let us look then to the word of God as it proclaims this truth out of the mouth of the living word himself, that being Jesus Christ. Let us look together and read Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Reading the word of God to us, it says this, Seeing the crowds, he, that being Jesus, went up on the mountain and went, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so reads the word of our living God. See, these, these Beatitudes, as they're known, the Beatitudes is really just Latin for the word blessed. And, and this word blessed here in our text that we're looking at has this idea of, of happiness, of 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 joyfulness. As a matter of fact, the, the, the Greek word here, that happiness just seems a little bit more shallow than what it's really trying to convey, right? Happiness just seems to have like a smiley face emoticon e feel to it, right? It doesn't have the, the depth of what this word is saying. The, the word does speak of joy. It does speak of happiness, but it has this idea of, of almost to be congratulated, to to be fortunate that's it's a bad word to use theologically but it captures the idea it's just saying your life is good it's good you are to be blessed it's it's happy it's rich it's joyful it is blessed it is blessed in the truest meaning of the word and so these beatitudes, uh, that word meaning blessed or happy, that they are given to us then the description and, the, con- and, the, and the, the commissioning to live a joyful life under the lordship of Christ. Now to set the context here, Jesus comes and this is a part of his great Galilean ministry. That Jesus has come now, as we pick up into chapter 5, as he speaks, these beatitudes, these blessedness is actually uh, the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus' declaration to the people of Israel that he is the king and that he has come to reign Everyone is gathered around him, and, and his disciples in particular. And he comes really in the spirit of Isaiah 61, uh, 1 through 3, which, which speaks of, of this. And I want to read this passage to you. It says, The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open up the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant all those who mourn in Zion and to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes and oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified that Jesus is coming in fulfillment of Isaiah 61 if you remember in Luke 4 he actually reads that passage of scripture in the temple you remember that Jesus comes in and he reads out of Isaiah 61 this passage and he reads it in the temple and he closes it and he says and he says this passage has been fulfilled now in your hearing He's saying, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, I am the King, and as reigning King, I want to redeem a people, and with that redemption, I want to bless them, to transform their hearts, to renew their souls and their minds, and now to give them an appetite and a life that is the way that I designed the world to be created Jesus Christ is King and he reigns. And as reigning king and Messiah, he now speaks to his people. Not a list of dues, not not a list of commands, but rather but rather insight in how to live out what has already been inaugurated in their hearts. You see, these beatitudes isn't just a list of things to kind of go for, but rather they are expressions to live out. Much like the fruit of the Spirit that we looked at last week, that these beatitudes are things that are experienced. They are things that are, that are pursued. They are things that are, that are known for one reason only, and not because of our own effort, but because Jesus Christ has reigned. And now we can now live under his lordship, and it's better, and It's better and you can see that throughout this whole this whole passage of the sermon on the mount uh, which runs through for the next two chapters that Jesus kept on refuting the the pharisees because the pharisees tried to say no this is what it means to follow god this is what it means to live under his reign and Jesus says no look they say unto you but i say unto you they say that this is what it means to follow God, but now as the reigning king, I want to abolish that and fulfill the law and now give you a new kingdom to live under and that kingdom is blessed and it comes out of a new and renewed heart, not one that's in judgment under the law. Now, of course, to the extent that the disciples understood that at this moment, um, we can't perfectly tell, but what we can see is that Jesus called his disciples together and he began to share with them what life under his lordship would look like and to commission them to pursue those things in contrast to all the false and half promises of the world around them. How much more so is that encouraging to us today? As his disciples, under the new covenant, that we can now pursue a blessed life under his lordship, to our joy and blessedness and to his glory. So, for the next few moments, I want to take a survey, and it really is going to be that. I mean, you could spend hours and hours and hours looking into that, and, and you can find resources and books that do those things. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones did a great book on the Sermon on the Mount. Our our president has done several um, works in the Beatitudes, very helpful for more in-depth study. But for today, as we move into this new semester and really thinking about what life is and our desires, that today I want to give a survey of it in order to reorient our spiritual palate to taste of the blessed life and it'll help us in turn to contrast all the false half promises that the world seems to give us that, that, that promise to have a better way of living. So let's look here into the first beatitude as Jesus sits down and he teaches his disciples in the presence of, of the Jewish leadership. So he's, he's teaching the disciples, but he's exhorting the spiritual leadership. So as we look at here is the first one, blessed happy joyful the good life is of yours if you are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven poor in spirit what does that mean what does poor in spirit look like as you live under the lordship of christ what is that well i don't think we really understand the concept of poverty really right um for some of us it's like yeah i'm poor you know (laughs) i'm poor Uh, Poverty really is, is a destitute that has no resources at all, but rather to be dependent on exclusively of others. That to be poor is to say that I have absolutely no resources whatsoever, and I'm completely dependent upon others. Poor isn't just a lack of resources that you want, but true poverty is saying that I have no resources at all. So look at what he says here. He says, the blessed, those who live in my kingdom, those who submit and live life under my lordship are blessed because they know that they are poor in spirit. They have nothing. You and I have nothing. We have absolutely nothing to bring to Jesus Christ. That we are completely a wretched, that we are ones that are to be the most pitied because of our brokenness before our God Romans 3 10 through 12 says that there are none righteous not even one it's it's that state where the prodigal son was was at the lowest point of his life and he came to his senses saying that there's nothing of value in me everything that I fought for everything that I held to was something that was of my own thinking but not the reality of where I live to be poor in spirit, to say that I bring nothing, that there's nothing, of my, there's nothing of worthiness, there's nothing of contribution that I bring that would make God to look upon me and to save me. But isn't there sometimes where we wrestle through that? We struggle and your angst. Have you ever seen that those moments of turmoil in your own heart are the ones when you are dealing with your own pride and your own heart? and your lack of humility? That, that in the, the world says to exalt yourself is what you are to be blessed, but isn't it true, Christian, that in the moments where you're exalting yourself is the times where you are most miserable? Because it goes against the reality of who you are in Christ, which is that poor in spirit. And isn't that a blessed place to be, to be poor in spirit? Because there then is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that having a poverty in spirit says that I don't have to bring anything to the table, but that all of the blessing that comes upon me is only because the king of creation has sought to rescue me? But We fight against that, don't we? those who are poor in spirit know that there is no other hope for deliverance for their lives other than God himself. And many of us have come to that moment of poverty of spirit after they've tried to find redemption in everything other than God. But God says your heart will never be satisfied. Only when it recognizes its true poverty in spirit will then taste of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what you see in the second part there in verse 3, is that blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You cannot come into the kingdom of heaven through pride and self-exaltation, but only through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ which saves you in the depth of your sin. Do you remember? Do you remember that moment when you realized that your salvation had absolutely nothing to do with you? And the blessedness to not have to be anybody other than a sinner that's been saved by grace. Dear friends, those moments, can I just say, the blessedness of life, the blessedness of life is not trying to pretend that you're worthy, not trying to pretend that you're something else, not trying to be something or do something so that others might see and accept you, but the blessedness of this life is to say that I have absolutely nothing to give. And that what is known of me is that Jesus Christ has saved me alone, not by any of my works, but by his grace. So that gives me the freedom, doesn't it? Because I don't have to be anything else but who I am. And who I am is a sinner that's been saved by grace. So it doesn't matter what people think of me. It doesn't matter what, what I try to do, but rather to blessedness of saying poverty in spirit. Listen, the world says to exalt yourself. The world says that you have to be perfect. I just feel like your generation, more so than any generation before, feels this pressure to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect because you're not. But God is holy and Perfect. And his righteousness has been bestowed upon you. And now you celebrate and enjoy the kingdom of heaven because you know your poverty of spirit. So fight against that, friends. Move away from anything in this world that says that you, that the value and the blessedness of life and you realizing your full potential. But rather to fight against that and to realize who you really are by living in poverty of spirit. Let that free your heart. Let that be blessed. Let that be joyful as to say, I don't have to live and try to be something that I'm not, but I can be poor in spirit and the kingdom of heaven is given to me. Spiritual pride is the antithesis to poverty in spirit. And can we just be honest that that's one of the challenges here at the college? because you get so much knowledge and so much knowledge and so much things and everybody's investing in you and everybody's telling you about all the impact you're gonna have for the kingdom and sometimes you begin to believe your own press. To fight against that and to say, yes, these things, that these are the truths of God's word. And I'm so grateful to have this investment. But in the end, I don't have to believe the hype because I know who I genuinely am. Let's pursue one another that way. Let's live life that way. And the freedom and the blessedness that comes from that truly exalts the kingdom of heaven of which we will inherit. Both in tasting of today and also in eternal life. At this pace, I'm not going to get through all the Beatitudes. There's no way, right? Absolutely. Oh, but let's try anyway. Okay, here we go. Here's the next one. Here's the next one. There's a lot in my heart today. You know? I'm unashamed about that. All right. Here's the next one. Blessed are those who mourn. right? Jesus, the king, speaks to us and says, the blessed life living under my lordship, that the blessedness comes when you mourn, when you mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Doesn't that seem antithetical? Doesn't that seem strange, that blessedness and joy comes through mourning? Well, let's explore here a little bit what it means by mourning. It's it's talking about about the, the loss and the brokenness of this world that there's a mourning that happens when, when the one who sees themselves accurately, when they see themselves as poor in spirit and the goodness of God that's been bestowed upon them that, and seeing the righteousness that's been given to them in their own sin, that their heart weeps. Their heart weeps when they see the brokenness of sin around them. Their heart weeps at it. It weeps. Knowing that this world is not the way that it should be sickness and pain and loss and hurt. That there's a mourning that happens in our soul that that God says that you're actually blessed because you're able to see the world accurately and to know that this world and all of its promises isn't meant to satisfy you. And so you, you you long for God's kingdom to come, but you mourn when you see the effects of sin. Both in your own heart, Blessed are those who mourn over their own sin. And when sin enters into your heart, when you, when you look and you see yourself accurately, that you mourn, you say, I'm not the way that I should be. I'm not the way that, that God would design me to be, and, and I mourn over those things it's not a morbid melancholy downtrodden it's just seeing the world and the circumstances of life the way the way that, that they were intended to be and mourning at the loss and the brokenness of sin worldly mourning tries to fix the world worldliness tries to fix what's broken the blessed godly Man and woman who live under the lordship of Christ don't try to fix this world, but rather they mourn over the brokenness. And why why will they then be comforted? Because they know that they don't have to fix this world, but there is a God who reigns as king who is going to come to renew all things and to fix what is broken. You mourn over the loss and the brokenness of the sin, but you're comforted because you know that there is a God who has come to make things right again. That's what Revelation 21 is. Revelation 21 says that there will be no more mourning. Why? Because Christ comes back and he's brought a whole again and he's renewed the earth and he's renewed the heaven. There's something inside of us that wants to see justice and wants it to be different and wants this world to be whole. But you need to fight against that and say, wait a minute, the truly blessed are people that say, I wasn't made to make things whole but rather I mourn over the brokenness of my own life. I mourn over the brokenness of this world. I think the thing that we think most about in terms of mourning is death, right? Is death. And isn't death a mourning? It's a mourning that says that this life and the implications of it, that there is death and that we're comforted knowing that that death has lost its sting and that there is an eternal life to those who have hope in Jesus Christ. And that, that microcosm of mourning over the death of a loved one is the, is, the, is the same mourning that goes to all the brokenness of this life, all the pain of this life. And instead of staying in your mourning and trying to fix things on your own, the blessedness of this life is to say, I rest in the sovereignty of God. I rest in the hope of God. And God comes and will comfort you and bring you blessing." Because one day he will come and you can trust those things. Well, for those who see themselves accurately and poor in spirit, those who, those who also um, see then the world accurately and, and mourn over that, that, that the next one that we look at here is blessed are the meek, that, that they're interrelated. These beatitudes are interrelated and the next one is blessed are the meek. What does it mean to be meek? It's a little bit of a, of a strange word. What it means is, is, um, is power under control. That meekness is relating to others, not in aggression, but in kindness and submission. It's relating to someone, not in aggression, but in kindness and submission. It's being meek. It's, it's gentle. It's, it's humble in spirit. It's soft in spirit. Because think about it. If you know yourself accurately, and you mourn and know the realities of sin, and that you place all of your trust in the God who will make all things right, it changes how you deal with and engage with other people, doesn't it? it says, I don't, to, I don't have to lord myself over you like the Gentiles do, but rather I can serve in meekness and in gentleness. Why? Because I'm not the king. And there is just a blessedness, isn't there, to know that you're not the king and that you can serve other people out of a humble heart of serving your king. And that meekness is known and is blessed. And you can see here that those who are meek shall inherit the earth, right? They shall inherit the earth. This idea of, of inheriting the earth is, is not, you don't have to think about it uh, metaphorically or algorize it, but, but literally that one day we will inherit the earth when Christ comes back and it renews all things, that those who are submission, submitted to his lordship, those who have been called and elected into his kingdom, those who then live out of that in meekness with one another saying, I'm not the king, one day you will reign with him. You will reign with him. So you don't have to worry about exalting your leadership. You don't have to worry about exalting your influence. You don't have to lord over people. You don't have to bully or manipulate or or be aggressive with others, but rather you can be meek and gentle in spirit. Why? Because you know that one day, one day that that there is a king that is is reigning and that one day we will reign with him and, and that we don't have to exalt ourselves. Man, there's just a tendency, isn't there? To fight for yourself, to promote yourself, to step up on the ladder, to step up over others, to to climb up the ladder, to to be at the top of the food chain. And when you you move into the world and when you see the vocations before you, that's everything the world is saying is is take what you can get and be aggressive and, 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 and command over others. But God says that actually isn't the blessed life. Because in the end, you get to the top of a 50-foot ladder and you realize it's up against a 100-foot wall. There's no satisfaction in that. But rather, the blessedness is saying, wait a second. I can exalt my king. I can exalt my king. And then meekness fights for the right things. It fights for the right things. It stands up for the king. It doesn't stand up for yourself. It defends the king. It does not defend yourself. Because that is his kingdom and his righteousness that we want to see advanced. And so we fight against that. And it's better, friends. It's better. It's better. It's better. Because all the world's accolades, all the position and power, will never eclipse the joy of submitting to the power and the reign of Jesus Christ. So are you following the logic here? Are you seeing how they relate to one another? Is your palate, is your spiritual palate being renewed to taste of things that are truly joyful? And hopefully in your own heart, a, a repentance and a disdain for those things, that promise blessing which you know doesn't really give satisfaction? Let's look to the next one. The next one. Our king proclaims to us that, that blessed, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, Blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. And look at the next one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Do you see the progression? That those who see themselves accurately, those who mourn and see the world accurately, those who relate to others accurately, saying this is who I am in my humanity and this is how great my God is, now wants more of God wants more of his righteousness, wants more of of an appetite that they hunger and thirst after that which is right, not that which is wrong. That you taste and you see that God is good. Righteousness and tasting of it is a theme throughout all of this sermon. And we're not just talking about Personal righteousness, not just tasting of rightness, of, of obeying the commands of scripture, of, of lovingly doing that which is right. But, but it's also seeing righteousness in the world as well, that you hunger and thirst for a world that would, that would display the righteousness of God through his church. And that might it stand as a beacon in a lost and desperate world. That there is something that's better to pursue. There's something that's better to taste of. You know, one of the things about Christian liberty, and, and one of our speakers, Les Ligan duggan spoke of this, is that sometimes, sometimes Christian liberty is framed into all the things that that's, that Christian liberty is the way that I can satisfy my desires and, and that I can enjoy all these things because I'm free in Christ. That's just not the point the joyful and the blessedness of being free in Christ is not smoking cigars and drinking wine and and dancing at your friend's bar mitzvah, right? That the blessedness of life and the true freedom of, of life is actually found in tasting of the righteousness of God. That the blessedness of righteousness is saying that I don't need to satisfy myself by my own desires, but that I can be truly satisfied and truly blessed in the righteousness of God alone, and I want more of it. Do you remember the first time where you said no to your sin, the desires and the longings and the hunger, and you pursued righteousness and you tasted of it? and you tasted of it how radically different it is The sinfulness of sin, my friend, is not not that sin is pleasurable, but that it promises to satisfy, that it promises to to curb your hunger, to curb your thirsty soul. But Jesus comes as reigning king and says, do you really want to be satisfied? Do you really want to be blessed? That you hunger and you thirst after righteousness because once you taste of it, you'll fight for it for the rest of your life. One of the reasons why we don't hunger and thirst for righteousness is because we're satisfied on lesser things. We're satisfied on lesser things. Another reason why we don't hunger and thirst after righteousness is because we haven't sought the purity and to understand what righteousness is and to to desire it and to experience it. Your heart is hungry. Your heart is thirsty. And what Jesus is saying here as king is don't deny your your desires. Don't deny... um, Don't deny those passions, but rather satisfy those in righteousness and you will truly be blessed. And the second half of the beatitude says that you will be satisfied. You'll be satisfied. Grasp that concept. Jesus Christ as King and Lord of all brings his disciples together and says, you can be satisfied and blessed in this world as you seek and taste and thirst for righteousness. What is it that truly satisfies you? What are the things that are half-truths and plausible lies? that you satisfy yourself in because you'd rather have a half satisfaction in the flesh than to trust full satisfaction in the promises of God. But here the king says, obey me, follow me, live in the new life that I've given you and as you live that out, you will taste of righteousness that is so far better than anything the world can offer, right? Here's the next one. Blessed are the merciful. So for those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, then, then are merciful towards others. Are merciful towards others. When we, when we speak of mercy, when we speak of mercy, we're really talking about um, the, the forgiveness, the forgiveness of the guilty and the compassion for the suffering. When we talk about being merciful, we're talking about forgiving Someone has sinned against you. Someone has sinned against others. What it means to be merciful is to say, I am a sinner that is poor. I am a sinner that is broken. I've been redeemed. And so therefore, when you are living in a way that is broken, I compassionately and mercifully look to you and give forgiveness because forgiveness has been given to me. People who are merciless, are people who don't believe they need mercy. People who are merciless, unforgiving, bitter, are people who don't believe that they need mercy as well. Because if you understand your poverty in spirit, if you see the brokenness of this world, and if you taste it of the blessedness of righteousness, that as you live and walk in meekness with others, it then seeks to give forgiveness. One of the blessed things in life that you can do is forgive another person. One of the most Christianly, kingdom-exalting, lordship of Christ proclaiming is to be able to forgive another person. Because you're saying, I'm not God. I'm not the judge. Jesus Christ is. And that he has forgiven me, and therefore I can forgive you. It's mercy. It's given to them in, in kindness. It's, it's, it's empathy. It's not sympathy, okay? It's not sympathy. It's empathy. It's saying, I am one in need of change as much as you are one in need of change. And I will forgive you. I will try to, to, to mediate the, the the consequences and the brokenness of your sin by forgiving you, by, by being compassionate towards you, by being merciful towards you, because I know that God alone is the one who judges all things. And so I will submit to his lordship by forgiving you as he has forgiven me. Are you a forgiving person? Are you empathetic towards others? Or are you demanding? Are you demanding? Are you, uh, are, you, are you unsympathetic? Are you not a forgiving person? You look back and you think, well, that's what it means, right? Because if I protect myself, if I make sure that, 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 that people are doing things that are right towards me, then I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be safe. But Jesus Christ says the safety comes from saying that you can give freely forgiveness out of the blessedness that comes from Jesus Christ. Colossians three, Colossians three, uh, Colossians three speaks of that three thirteen. Just speaks of that, says that I can forgive you because Christ has forgiven me. And that's, that's what the second part of this beatitude is. It says. It says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that if you're merciful that somehow that God will see that and then grant you mercy. No, that's not the case because you're poor in spirit, right? You can't earn anything in your salvation. But yet when you are merciful, you will receive mercy because the ability to be merciful says that you have received mercy. You cannot be merciful to others if you have not received mercy. So therefore, Jesus Christ says, you can be, you are blessed, you are joyful, you're not bitter, you have hope and joy, saying that you can forgive others because you know what it means to be forgiven and you want others to experience the same. And it's not throwing truth under the rug but it's taking the truth of the brokenness of sin and saying God in his word has reconciled you and has forgiven you for that sin. It doesn't throw sin under the rug, but it addresses sin as sin and says God has come to forgive that sin and therefore I can be incarnate that love in my ministry to you and my mercy to you because I know the sinfulness of my own heart and I've been forgiven and therefore I can be merciful to you. So let me as one who is in need of mercy give mercy to you because we know that in the end that it is God alone who forgives all. Well, that person then is one who is blessed and pure in spirit, isn't it? Pure in heart, aren't they? This this blessed or the pure in heart is the one who, who has singleness of heart and singleness of desire. See, you can't engage that way. You can't engage in the blessedness and living out the lordship of Christ with a duplicitous heart. You can't. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are those who are, who are pursuing righteousness. Blessed are those who are mortifying sin. Blessed are those who are pure and undefiled in their passions. They're singular towards them. The pure in heart, you cannot live a blessed life with a duplicitous heart. That's what James 1 says. James 1 says that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. What pure in heart here is speaking of is holy Integrity holy integrity, that there isn't a a desire to have others sin to be coddled in the inwards of your heart, but rather to seek and to pursue a purity in heart, a singleness in heart, a holiness in heart, because that is tasting of God. That's what it says there. For those who are pure in heart shall see God. Why? Because it is in holiness that we most see the righteousness of God. And so when our hearts and our mind are towards that which is holy, we are purified. That's why Colossians 3 says, to set your minds on the things above and not the things that are on the earth, right? Why? Because our hearts have already been cleansed in 1 John 1, 1.7. It says, it says that we have been cleansed, so now live that way. That's what all of these Beatitudes are saying. They're not saying just pursue purity in heart. It's saying your heart has already been redeemed. Now live out in it. And it's better. And it's better. I don't know what it is, but there's, there's this undercurrent of cool and relevant that is Wicked. It just seems like everything that's cool, everything that's relevant, everything that's edgy is wicked. And that it's countercultural, it's Pollyanna, it's 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 Puritan irrelevance to actually live pure in this day and age. And you fight against it, don't you? You don't want to be that guy to raise his hand when everybody's watching something that they shouldn't. You don't want to be that gal that says, "Look, maybe we shouldn't gossip." You don't wanna be that person. You don't wanna be the one that lives out the purity in their heart because there's this, there's this sense that what it means to be popular, what it means to be accepted is gonna be more blessed than the purity in heart. Let us look to the word of God. Let us look to what Jesus has said and he said, blessed, the most joyful in your life are those who seek to be singular in their holy integrity and that is better than anything this world has to offer. And it's blessed. Why? For you shall see God. For you shall see God. John 17, 3, for this is eternal life, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The purity of heart means that you see God and you taste of God. And that is blessed than anything else this world has to offer. Do you know that the blessedness of this life the blessedness of your Christianity, the blessedness of your spirituality is that you taste of Jesus Christ. Your salvation is wrapped up, yes and amen, in Jesus Christ. Uh, My pastor on Sunday spoke of that redemption. The blessedness of redemption is actually being invited into the Trinity itself and to taste of its communion and pleasures and relationship with God. The purity in heart means that you will see God, that you will taste of God. The Bible says that, that, that in his word it will renew our minds that, so that we can taste of the divine nature. Let me say, friends, that the purity of heart tastes better than the half pleasures of sin. Pursue those things, friends. Be that person and you will be blessed. Don't believe that anything else would be different. If you live that way and you have that peace, you're going to want others to have that same peace. And blessed are those who are peacemakers. That as you live and you taste of the blessed life, as you live under the lordship of Christ, you don't want to run away from conflict with your brothers and sisters, but you want to run towards them and bring peace. Why? Because you come with one message, and that is you can live a blessed life. You don't need to be broken and in conflict. You don't have to squabble over these lesser things. You don't have to enjoy uh, the, you can enjoy the blessedness of union with Christ. Conflict is not something to be run away from, but rather those who are truly blessed move towards conflict and bring peace with one another, saying, I have true peace. I have true blessedness. I'm pursuing these things, and I want you to pursue the same thing, to taste and to see that God is good. Not to fake peace, not to throw peace under the rug, but to say within the sinfulness and the brokenness and the conflict of our lives that we can actually move towards one another. Why? Because there is a confidence that Jesus Christ is reign and he is Lord, and we can live under his lordship in peace even when it seems that there can be no peace. Do you want to know why people run from peacemaking? It's because they don't have peace themselves and they have nothing to offer their friends but to those who have peace they desire to make peace and those who make peace shall be called sons of god what does it mean to be called sons of god back in the ancient near east that the that the actions of the son reflected the father So too, when you are a peacemaker, you are an incarnational representation of Jesus Christ who has come to make peace. He is the prince of peace. He has come to bring those that are separated in union together. And so when we make peace with our friends, when we we are peacemakers, that we are actually sons of God because we're acting as God would have us to act to proclaim his peace. Dearly beloved, to move and to find satisfaction in throwing conflict under the rug, you know doesn't satisfy. You know it doesn't satisfy. You've tried, right? I mean, you've tried, haven't you? You've tried to ignore conflict. You've tried to run from conflict. And you know that that's not blessed. You know that the sum total of you trying to solve your problems by your own ways outside of God's commands doesn't work. But let me remind you today, even though it's scary, it's unscripted, it's challenging, that there is nothing more blessed in this world than to be a part of peacemaking because we are actually living out the reconciliation that's been given to us by God into the hearts of our friends. That's better. That's better than ignoring. That's better than hiding. That's better than running away than to run towards these last two, saying that blessed are, blessed are those when others rile against you and persecute you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness' sake, in verse 10, that living this way, Living in a counter-cultural way against the world will evoke the wrath of the world upon you. Satan is like a roaring lion, and, his, and he's a dominion and power over the world. And the world, the world theologically, is everything that is against Christ and his kingdom. So as you live in the kingdom, as you live in submission to Jesus Christ and his lordship, that is in direct, uh, that is in direct against everything that's in the world so the world will hate you and persecute you but it is blessed why because it proves you're not in the world don't act like the world why would you act like the world you're not in the world, so live as, a, as one who is living under the submission of God. Live in hope and blessedness and joy, knowing and submitting to God as your king, and the world will hate you, and the world will persecute you. Why? Because they persecuted the prophets before you and Jesus Christ himself. If you proclaim Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. If you are not persecuted, you are not of the kingdom of God. it's better to be persecuted because it reminds your soul that you are in the kingdom and to follow and to live the lordship of Christ is better is better is blessed than anything this world has to offer let us live under the lordship of Jesus Christ being poor in spirit and mourning, being meek, and hungering, and thirsting, and merciful, and pure, and hard, and peacemakers, knowing that when persecution comes, it just confirms again that we are in the right kingdom, and we will be blessed, because it exalts our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we get to live of what we've been redeemed to do and to be. Might we live according to his word, and by the power of his spirit let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, God, our hearts are humbled as we look at your word, knowing that our hearts long for things and so distracted by the things of this world and all the pleasure that it provi- that it promises. But oh Lord, I pray for my friends here, for these beloved students, that as they as they are um, awakening their spiritual palate, as they are seeking after what is truly blessed in this world, might they be reminded from your word today that there is nothing more blessed than just to live out the newness of life that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Might we seek those things, might we fight against the temptations of the world and truly be blessed so that we might proclaim to the world that you are better and that you are to be exalted above all things may your kingdom come, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.